Welcome to Nectaris Conversations. I'm your host, Pascal Tremblay. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Nectara. We're an online platform helping people find belonging and meaning on their psychedelic wellness journey. Today, I'm uh, talking with my friend, Devin Walker. Uh, he's a coach and a mindfulness teacher and a psychedelic preparation integration guide. He's part of our Nectara team of guides as well. Um, I first met Devin about, I would say, a year ago, right, Devin? Something around there. And, yeah, I think um, that's about right. Was quite impressed uh, immediately with his maturity and his emotional intelligence and his kindness and and his good heart and in the way he also approaches his work with really high integrity. So uh, Devin's been a, a, a good friend since then and looking forward to uh, getting to know him a little bit better today. Um, Devin lives in between Toronto and Florida, and he's getting married soon, which is awesome. And um, would love to hear Devin, like, first of all, hi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Pascal. It's such a pleasure to be here. Likewise to, to have you. Um, what's your what's your mission? Well, what are you up to? Yeah, so I've been uh, working, actually, I've been working with a coach recently. And one of the things we've been working on is my mission statement. You know, what is the thing that... I can wake up in the morning and and say and use that as my guiding force, you know. And so it's obviously a work in progress and these things change and evolve. But, um, yeah, my mission is to bring, help do my part to bring humanity forward into alignment with what I call the spirit of nature. Um, and I mean that literally with the laws of nature and the natural world and climate and these kinds of things. And then also, I mean that in terms of spirit, which I mean, you know, the unknown or something bigger than ourselves. And, um, you know, I, I believe that is the proper, that there's, um, healthy relationships with those things, uh, and ways of being in relationship with those two things that are, shall we say, um, in alignment with reality and there aren't. And in my life, my level of suffering, my level of thriving is determined by that alignment. And it's also what I help people do um, in many different realms of life. So I do that, uh, as you mentioned, through coaching, where I work with um, this kind of life coaching as well as leadership coaching and um, also work a lot with masculinity. And I also do that through teaching mindfulness for organizations and working with Nectara as a integration guide. So that's mm. what I'm up to. Beautiful. Um, I'm a big fan of always having kind of, um, anchor points for like what we're up to in the world, like a mission statement, um, mm. our purpose statement, the values that help guide you and the guiding principles that help guide your life. Um, cause all those things, eventually shape your destiny um mm. so i'm a big fan of putting that on paper so kudos to you for looking at those statements and really helping define uh, in a more clearer more embodied way like what you're up to in the world and that leads to more clear action and more powerful actions as well yeah um, it does and and i would the thing i would say that's been really helpful about this is it it helps me know what to say no to which i think is one of the hardest things to do in the world, um, especially now where there's so much coming at us, 
and it's you know even things that I would like to do or like to engage in or like to explore sometimes I just need to say no in order to stay focused on my mission right? and that's that feel, that's a super helpful tool for me so mm -hmm. yeah yeah well said so now you're having to develop or looking at your mission statement and um, it's 2022 now and mm -hmm. um, take us back to how it all started like the first step in this journey or like a very mm -hmm. important step you had along the journey of like being here today and being uh, able to say that you're you're helping people walk their own journey and at the same time mm -hmm. of course like walking your own at the same time and always learning right. and uh, having a beginner's mind around um, these things that you're exploring in your own life how did it all start yeah well I think it's good to start here because as you say you know there's the idea of a beginner's mind and I my work is to help people on their journey right but I try to keep it grounded in my own experience like what I've what I will talk about today what I've learned through my life the practices that I teach people the ways in which I help people are basically the ways in which I've learned to help myself and usually I'm maybe a step or five steps ahead of people or even right beside people, you know, on the journey that they're walking, but there's something that I have to offer and there's something that they have to offer me. And so, so I, I like starting here because, um, that really is the frame that guide that, that houses my work is that I'm working with things that have, I've used to help me on my path. And typically the things that have actually been beneficial for me are also things that other people can find useful as well. And they're the things that I know the best, right? So um, all that just to say I'm a learner and it's a continuous learning journey. So um, I was born in California, sunny Southern California. And I think that's kind of baked into my climate preferences. You know, I, I'm, I'm up in Canada a lot. My my partner lives in Toronto here, and the and I can feel almost like the part of me that's that was born in the sunshine and by the ocean, and uh, and so that's you know connecting with that is is an was an early part of my experience is just being on the water, and being by the ocean and hearing the sound of the ocean. We lived like five minutes from from the ocean in Dana Point, California. And when I was five, we moved. We moved across the country to to Connecticut. And that was a really, really difficult thing for me. I think I was just highly sensitive. You know, I, I come from a family that, you know, my mom's side imm are, were immigrant, immigrants from Bolivia. And there's a lot of generational trauma, a lot that was experienced in that immigration and the leaving of home. And then a lot was that was experienced ancestrally. So... I already had a lot of sensitivity, you know, going in. And when we made that move, um, it really affected affected me, you know. And so by the time I was seven years old, um, I had a lot of what they would call in the 90s behavioral issues, you know, anger problems, these kinds of, you know, uh, just disruptive, running away from school, coming home, you know, coming home from school and just sitting on the steps and s screaming unconsolably until I like was too exhausted. Right. And so when I, by the time I was seven years old, I, that's when I started seeing my first therapist and 
by the time I was nine, I had um, I was on antidepressants, and you know that kind of began my journey of uh, struggling with wellness right? and seeking wellness and seeking these kinds of things. And I was diagnosed with lots of learning disabilities and had a very tumultuous journey through childhood, you know, and and but one of the gifts was that I did start this kind of introspection when I was seven years old and continued that for 20 years, you know. Um, and as part of my way of dealing with the instability of my circumstances growing up in my home, um, I had found I had a pretty sharp mind and I learned that I could um, protect myself using my mind, using rationality. That I could essentially, through rationalizing, through saying you make sense or you don't make sense or you're rational or this is not rational or that's not rational, I could. I found some kind of grounding in my life and through through high school. And that and this was really rewarded in school. You know, this was critical thinking was like my jam, right? Like I was so so uh, critical. And I was so sharp and I was, and so over years, by the time I was in college, I was studying analytical philosophy and really honing this rationality, this hyper rationality, this um, really living in my mind. And, and over time became pretty disconnected from my body and disconnected from my heart. Um, and I don't think this is a totally uncommon story. I mean, I think our society rewards this. Right. And and actually, you know, this was a thing that was valued, you know, and they said, you know, you should go to law, law school. You're going to be a great lawyer or in in business as, mm-hmm. a, as an analyst, you know. And, and so um, so I went into my 20s and into the workforce, disconnected from my heart, disconnected from my body and with a, what I would call a highly weaponized um, intelligence. You know, my mm-hmm. my intellect was weaponized in a way. It was seeking the weak spots in things that people would say, or ideas, or structures, or companies, or whatever. I, you know, and finding those and revealing them, and and that's what I got hired to do, essentially to like find problems and uh, diagnose them, essentially in people in places. And so um, that was my identity, right? And as I I went and and I had I had a real um, powerful desire to make public change, you know. And, and I studied political philosophy in particular, and I really felt growing up that there was so much wrong with our society and government. And I just felt that things weren't the way that they should be. And I endeavored to change that. So I I started a, a company, um, a social impact firm, after a couple of years of consulting. And, um, and long story short is I'd burnt myself out probably like the third time in three years that I had burnt myself out. And, um, and in that process of burnout and then subsequent depression, I realized a couple of things. I realized that this way of living in my head wasn't working for me health wise. It wasn't effective at doing the good that I wanted to do in the world. And yeah, that I was suffering, you know, and my body was suffering and I didn't really know how to take care of myself. 
And so that, and, and that's when I started meditating. That's when I went to my first Vipassana retreat. And that started me on this whole different journey where, you know, 18, 20 years of therapy, talk therapy, helped me understand in a really clear way what I was, why I was the way that I was. Like I understood my early childhood influences. I understood, you know, psychology. I had an introspective practice, but it was all intellectual, you know, and it was all um, understanding. And what I found was that no matter how well I understand my patterns, it didn't actually help me change them or shift them. Like if I, I, you know, had an addictive pattern to like say video games or something and I would knew that I was running away from these feelings. Or, so I knew these things, but it didn't help me actually change it, right? And so after this period of, of depression and suffering, I, I found, I started coaching. I, started, I hired a coach and we started to practice. And we practiced through mindfulness-based practice how to begin to open my mind, to change my mind, to come down out of my head and into my body. Um, I moved to Los Angeles. I started getting to dance and music. I started DJing. And um, I stopped with the burnout, basically. You know, work, And I was working at startups, tech startups, uh, in a product role. And my, my goal at that time was like, you know, just focus on taking care of myself and focus on my personal development and work. My career became, you know, number two, number three on my list of priorities, which was a new thing for me. And I did that for a couple of years and I, I found that I got to a, basically a neutral, good place. You know, I was able to take care of myself. I held down the job. I was productive there. I you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the city. And I got to this place in my life where it was like, oh, I'm doing pretty well. And at that point, um, I realized that because of the antidepressants that I was on, I was also living life within a smaller range, right? Like the lows were not that low and the highs were not that mm -hmm. high. And I thought, yeah. wow, like I'm doing well, I'm stabilized and I would like to expand my um, experience of life. So I went off, went through the whole process of going off these antidepressants, having to learn mm -hmm. how to deal with the extremities of life through things like meditation and yoga and 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 um, and all of this. But I still had this, um, I would say, frame of reference that the world was basically like a science, like basically a scientific materialist kind of view of the world. That like things were things, and and it was all about science and I really didn't believe anything that couldn't be provable through an experiment. But as I started to become well, um, I had this underlying sense that like there was something about my life that didn't fit. It was like I had transformed on the inside, but I was still in the same body, you know, and I needed to go into mm -hmm. a cocoon and transform. And, and that's when plant medicine came into my life in a significant way. Well, I had been going to Burning Man and doing some, um, psilocybin and LSD experimenting, you know, recreationally for a while. But then I, uh, I felt a call to, uh, work with ayahuasca and it came into my life in a really clear way, you know, where I just, it was that instant. Yes. Like, Oh, I'm interested in that. And I really feel like I need to do that. <laughs> and, and I, my first ceremony, um, was absolutely, Extraordinary! It was like I popped out of that cocoon, um, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, I had a completely different 
worldview, where I really started to view the world as multi-layered, multifaceted, and um, really just acknowledging that there's so much beyond what I could know and see. Um, and that is what opened me up to the journey that I've been on these last, you know, uh, five, six, seven years, which is the journey of finding my purpose in the world and um, finding partnership and um, exploring and understanding that multifaceted nature of reality. Um, so that's kind of my story, you know, and I would say before my that psychedelic experience, there was a me and then afterwards there was a me, right? And I'm in the, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like, AD, you know, it's like BC and AD. That's how I kind of feel in my life. It's like before Devin and after Devin in a way. Um, <laughs> Never heard that one before. Yeah. That's a good frame of analogy. That's truly how I think about my life. I was like, oh, is that like before? or at-? Yeah, okay, yeah, that was like before. Because I really felt like a different person. Um, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, so I've just continued, continued that journey of, of, of looking deeper and deeper inside myself. And learning more and more about the nature of reality, and um, I'm really interested in the ways that um, the things under the surface or the things that are not visible influence what we see and how we behave, and the culture that we're a part of, and the society, and our relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of my work is helping people go inside and direct the gaze, the attention, the awareness inside as a way of looking at some of these inner forces that exist within them. Um, and mm-hmm. my belief is that if we want to change the world, we have to change ourselves first. It's the thing we basically have almost no control over most things, but we do have influence of where we put our attention. And so a lot of my work is is helping people use that influence and develop the capacity to influence where they place their attention in order to transform the way they move and be and and see the world you know and see themselves mm-hmm. and that's yeah. that's 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 where that's where I am now and and I and I work with psychedelics as a as allies you know I work with um, plant medicine as allies to help um, achieve that mission mm. because that's Beautiful. what's helped me uh, uh, move towards wellness and wholeness and and synchronicity with with nature and with reality. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing. Um, I heard someone call psychedelics karma accelerators <laughs> once, yeah. and I thought that was good, pretty accurate. Um, And while you were sharing your story, I was nodding a lot because I was like, oh, that's like my story. Oh, that's like my story. Mm -hmm. I was very similar to you growing up. Like, you know, my brain was my protector Mm -hmm. and uh, it did serve me really well. Um, Got me through some pretty intense family things. And uh, that became my mode of operating until I was, you know, maybe 35, 36. I'm almost 42 now. Um, And I'm curious, like from 
just in in terms of understanding and, and sharing like your story relative to mine i'm when i was going through that phase of being super brain heavy um i also had this deep awareness of my heart inside mm. as being like a very strong energy for me mm. and yet it seemed like my brain was consistently overriding that that knowingness mm. of what i had inside mm. um I'm curious, like how you navigated that as someone growing up. Like you started very early in the therapeutic world, mm. like seven. Um, did you have that deep awareness of your true essence at that point when you were growing up, like going into your teens and early adult lives? And how were your relationships mm. um, before the psychedelic experience? Like, uh, how how were you navigating that world? Yeah, that's a very complex question. I. I um... I think that I was not aware, as you describe, of my core essence. I think, you know, I felt emotions. I knew I was highly sensitive. Um, but I, I believe because of the antidepressants that I was on more or less consistently since I was nine. Those, those helped me manage my emotions. They helped me fit in. And so then anything that was like, on the outer edges of that range of emotion that I could experience, I could rationalize and I could uh, disprove or I could disregard or regard, you know, I was very emotional for sure, but I had all of these systems keeping me within the bounds. So I was able to exist in society, to exist in the school system, to perform, to, be in the, you know, and I grew up with a lot of privilege too. So I could, you know, someone says they go to therapy when they're seven years old, it means that they've grown up in an immense amount of privilege. And I think that also played a part in kind of insulating me from having to feel fully, right? I was not only on the antidepressants, but I was also on stimulants for attention deficit disorder. And I had all sorts of support in school to help me manage my emotions and learn skills about how to communicate and navigate through and um you know you know bless god bless my parents because they really did the best that they could without the tools of knowing how to do that themselves within themselves um to help me be at their image of what success would be you know for them and so yeah i would say like no like i think largely it was cut off from my heart and i didn't understand um, that my true essence was below my neck. I was really identified with my ability to rationalize. And it was not in a soulless way. I mean, I definitely, like, I was attracted to Aristotle. And for a long time, I memorized this quote from Aristotle. Aristotle, um, or it was like, the good life for man is um, the attempt to seek the good life for man. And the virtues necessary mm -hmm. for the seeking are those which enable the good light, you know, the person to seek. And like, that was my guiding essence. It was this very like, um, philosophical point of view. And, and I really wanted all of my actions to be aligned with, with articulated principles. And, um, and that was useful because it, and it provided a channel for my inner desire to have integrity and my inner desire for truth. You know, which I would say is part of my essence, um, and what I what I do now, and also it was constraining because uh, so much of my awareness, so much of my 
um, love is in my was in, is in my body. So much of the way that I express love, so there's so much of the way that I receive love is through my body. I'm actually a very physical person. And uh, mm-hmm. another, one other thing that I do is I, I teach dance and um, a kind of improvisational contact dance. And when I found that, and when I started to move in my body, is when I, my heart really started to open, and re- and my relationships started to become more emotional, you know, more, um, more with more depth. Um, yeah, that's what I would say to that. Mm-hmm. And then ayahuasca came in and kind of transformed, uh, made you blossom, really. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about, like, my first ceremony was also transformative. I also felt like I was in a different person after more of myself. And what transformed me is um, the morning after, like, the, the ceremony itself was beautiful. Like, mm. She took me to, like, different ecosystems, and I flew over rivers, and, like, it was very, like, Earth-like, Pachamama kind yeah. of connecting thing. And that, to me, like, was, like, I'm not alone. That's, mm-hmm. That was the That's biggest right. um, insight I took from my first ceremony. I just felt connected. And the morning after, I remember uh, getting up and, and looking into people's eyes and for the first time feeling connected to other people from mm. the heart and not the systemic analytical mind that I had. Um, and that, to mm. me, changed my life is that feeling. And that, to me, has been the guiding force of everything I do now is shared humanity and how we can mm. um, collect and connect and how much we share together and how much we can create together. That's my driving force. So what changed for you that, that, that day or, or night? The way I think about it is that it was, um, I had been doing very intense work with my coach for like three years, you know, and I had a, I had a deep meditation practice and I was, uh, learning how to take care of myself and learning not to just trust my basic, uh, uh, not to trust my unconscious completely right? and to become conscious of the patterns and these things. So I've been doing this work for a long time and, and my experience of it was like when I did that first weekend, so I did three ceremonies in that weekend the first time, right? And um, the first one was exactly like you said, it was like coming home. It was this big, big open, open, loving, loving almost like these almost African, like the African mama, mama arms, arms uh, uh, that, that said, said, we've been waiting, we've been for, waiting you. for you, you know, and took, you know, me, and through took me through ecosystems and all this thing. And, all this thing. And, and, just and just that feeling that of feeling coming, of coming home, home, that feeling like that, 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 I, was like that I was held, that I had... Uh, uh, someone was watching someone out for me, out that, for I, me that, I, that I was connected to the earth. I was of the earth. I was a child of the earth. You know, my mother was my mother in, on this earth, you know, my biological mother, but also my mother was the universe, was the world. And, you know, I, I had been working with a mother wound for a long time. So that... that Learning to, learning to relate to relate the earth to and the earth to the environment, environment as my mother, mother as the provider, provider as the nurturer mm-hmm. was a deeply healing thing for me. Um, it, um, it, it allowed me to feel, me feel safe, safe in myself. And, and that was the that transformative was thing. thing. It's like I felt I safe felt to safe then become to vulnerable, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. to other people, to, other to people open myself up to, up to share. share. 
um, um, because I wasn't afraid of being hurt or having that used against me. You know, I, I think it's it's a good time to talk a little bit about the maturation of what I would refer to as masculinity because, you know, there is this... I felt like that that was the beginning of my transition from um, a child to an adult in like a deep sense. Uh, and it was also the beginning of my opening to what I would call the inner feminine um, in myself, the flow of emotion, the, uh, the connection with nature, the uh, receptivity that I learned that I had and was available to me. And then, you know, and then for the next few years after that experience, that opening was really a, a letting go of the sharpness of the weaponization of my intellect, of the judgment, of the criticism, of the, the life of the mind that I had lived. It was a letting go into um, a growing spirituality, it was a letting go into this notion that things are okay and going to be okay if I don't manage and control it all the time with my mind. And um, and as a as a man, that was a opening into what I would call like my inner feminine and the flow and the dance and the music and the beauty. And all of this came through me in a big way, right? And then uh, now, in the last year or so, I feel that I, I felt at a certain point that I um, needed to come back to a kind of center, that I needed to back, reintegrate my mind, reintegrate the rationality, reintegrate a decisiveness a planned, a planning kind of a vision, a um, a stability, a sense of well-being, a sense of of um, you know, like I think about like the mountain instead of the river, right? Or I needed the banks of the river again. Anyway, it's almost like I I went on that flow inside myself and I drifted off into the ocean. And it became too expansive for me as I want as I. As I said, okay, well, now I have a purpose. Now I want to go build something in my life. I want to build a business. I want to build a family. I want to build a relationship. And I found that after letting go into the flow of my heart space for a long time, I needed then to, to take that, include that, and integrate the healthy aspects that I had left behind. So my story is one of one extreme to the other extreme. And now primarily what I work with and what I'm studying and what I'm interested in is the convergence of those two things um, in myself. And what does it mean to be balanced when it comes to mind and body? What does it mean to be balanced when it becomes between um, making decisions and being planful and being intentional and being open to the flow of how things work? Um, mm -hmm. So that's... I'd love to chat a little bit about that and also hear a little bit about your experience um, in that sense as well. Yeah, sure. And I'd love to share. And I'd, I'd also like to ask, um, 
you know, the words masculine and feminine. Yeah. Um, there's so many different perspectives on what that can mean in terms of, of, uh, definition, but also in terms of like where the definition comes from, which for everyone will come from lived experience yeah. and social mm -hmm. norms or like cultural norms or even spiritual or religious uh, norms as well. And of course, there's like the gender and, and physical aspect of things. And so um, what what does it mean to you? Because everyone will have their own perspective on what, what, what does masculinity mean to you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good question. I think it's um, something that is worth starting a little bit before that. Uh, there's one writer, Ken Wilber, who's a brilliant philosopher, who um, he talks a little bit about this, and he, I thought he put it in a really good way in terms of breaking it down. He talks first about sex, and he says, you know, sex commonly refers to the certain aspects of the human reproductive system, right? And probably like, I don't know, like I think the statistics are like 98% of us are born in either a female body or a male body. And um, that's what we mean when we say sex, right? And then there's something different, which is gender, as I understand it. And gender, it refers to the acculturation of... Um, basically the learned acculturated effects of being raised at a specific time in a specific place in a specific culture in a female or a male body. And as we know, like, you know, gender changes and it's shifting and it's flowing and it actually shifts and flows based on time and place. And, and now based on uh, conscious decision and other things like that, um, and then I would say that when I think about masculinity and femininity, that there are aspects of gender in one sense, on one, on one level, that um, m when we talk about masculinity, we're talking about uh, a specific acculturation from male-bodied people that were raised in a particular culture, right? So like a particular set mm -hmm. of the way that they were treated, the way that they were taught as a result of being in the male body, as a result of... Um, being identified with with a you know as a man or a boy um, and so that's one level where we can talk about you know and then you get into things like okay well what was masculinity in the 1950s in America what was the image of that how did people try to uh, you know uh, align with that social norm and how is that change? How did that change in the seventies and the and the sixties, and then evolve into the nineties? There's a whole cultural perspective that it takes a look at. And then the other way that uh, I speak about masculinity sometimes is referring to what you might call divine masculine, or um, the mask, the traditional masculine archetype. And this is, I use the word archetype because we're talking here about um, something that doesn't actually exist in a human being per se, but it's like taking the points of extreme of a certain persona and idealizing it so we, so it, we can illustrate a type, um, a character mm -hmm. that we may see in ourselves or in culture or in the collective. Um, and so 
that happens in spiritual realm and it also happens in cultural realm where you have stories about the king you know and what that what does that mean what, what are the aspects of a king or you have stories about the wild man what is that what are the aspects of a wild man how do we see that in ourselves you know you have people like young and robert bly and these um these writers that talk about that and then on the on the more religious spiritual side there is a long tradition in many different cultures of of dividing the spiritual force into masculine and feminine you have in hinduism you have the whole host every masculine god has a feminine god associated with it um you you also have this concept even at a higher level of yin and yang so yin being the receptive the flow the inward uh the river and yang being the externalization the sun the borders of the river as a way of describing phenomena and reality but also describing the way that different religions and people interpret spirituality um because it's and it's useful because these archetypes point out dynamics that happen within each of us and within each of our relationships and then also within society as a whole um my and my belief is that a lot of the turmoil that we're experiencing in our culture and society is a result of changing mm, positions changing polarity within these forces at large so i think that's a long-winded answer of what i mean by masculinity <laughs> oh, it's a complicated sense? subject yeah. yeah it totally makes sense and it is a very nuanced and diverse and expansive uh, domain that um, you know there is even kind of like a new age modern definition of these terms that um, you know, has evolved over time and um, there's also um, the scientific aspect of this which is of course in the atomic world that you can see in the microscope that mm -hmm. different polarities are physically like attracted towards each other until they finally collide or, or connect together mm. um, it is also kind of the indigenous aspect of it as well, which talks about the sun and the moon and like all those different kind of um, elements of the world and kind of attributing feminine and masculine uh, qualities to them. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, it's a very wide, expansive uh, topic. Um, and it's also like the ancestral as well, like yeah. like where where is our lineage coming from and how their social norms and cultural and, and religious norms how were they when they were growing up and that's it gets all passed down into our dna of course and i'm curious from your own personal perspective um like how was your relationship to the masculine growing up and how has it changed mm. since and i can share a bit about my story my dad was a very kind of 1950s man yeah. uh, in the army you know uh, on top of that so he was very rigid very kind of uh, straight to the point, uh, very direct, uh, you know, not super warm. Like, you know, he loves you, but he doesn't say it. Yes. Like maybe yeah. once every decade, he might say it. And I, I love my dad and he loves me. But um, that was a great teacher for me growing up because as I was walking my own healing journey, um, these attributes that I saw in him, I saw in myself and they were the grounds from which I could develop myself and uh reimagine like what it means to be uh, a man in, in my context in, in my own personal context mm -hmm. um and since then i would say like like you like i've 
you know, really healed um, big parts of my relationship to the masculine, but also the feminine as well, which was uh, out of balance because of my upbringing, really, and the way I was brought up mm. in my household. And so a lot of my work has been to, you know, bringing down from the mind to the heart and to the body like yourself, um, but also adding more feminine aspects to my practices and my philosophies and the way I conduct myself in the world, uh, more gentleness, more more creativity, mm. more dynamism, those kind of things. Um, so I, I, how did you grow up in, in your household and how was your relationship to those forces? Yeah, I think, you know, we grew up in a, with traditional gender roles. Um, my mom, I think, uh, started staying at home when my brother was born. My brother was, I was three when my brother was born. And my dad uh, spent 35 years, 37 years at a, at the same company, you know, climbing the cor- a corp- a, like a large international corporate ladder. And um, he traveled a lot. He brought home all the money. Um, maybe saw him cry once or twice, three times, you know, that, that I can remember. I'm sure there were more, but, um, and those were like big deals, you know, very rare kind of, oh my gosh, did you see, you know, like dad cry, like what, what's going on? And, uh, and yeah, and I, you know, my, my grandfather was like, was that 1950s guy? He was in the Navy in World War Two. He came back and he worked as a trucker, you know, and, and he, he was a box, he was a bare knuckle boxer on his, on his Navy tanker. And he has like a little, you know, he, I, we still have his like a silver gloves that he won, you know, boxing and the, the and, and he was from the South and he was, you know, he was a leader in his community, but a very traditional Southern, um, working class man, you know, and, very little communication, very little, uh, not asking a lot of questions. It's mostly like, you know, watching sports and doing logistics. Um, and, and, and probably the only emotion that I saw on a regular basis was anger. That was the allowed emotion, I would say, uh, in my grandfather and my father. Um, and that's, that's the version of masculinity that I, that I grew up with. And when I started doing men's work, it was an absolute revelation for me. It it was, you know, I went to a men's retreat, I remember, and I was sitting around this circle. I was like in my twenties and next to me was the 65 year old potato farmer from Idaho. And the, you know, uh, a 37-year-old psychoanalyst from Manhattan to my left with a, like all dressed in black with black glasses and then, and then across from me was a you know a black man and someone who had immigrated from Pakistan and someone so so there was this all these men that I hadn't interacted with yet were around the circle and they were like feeling emotions for the first time in their lives in front of me crying for the first time in decades like in front of me about just about life, you know, about their relationship with their father, about 
their relationship with their wife or their their partner or you know the, the confusion and the the anxiety that they felt or you know whatever it was it was like these very human problems that I just literally never heard a man talk about. We didn't know we were allowed to have problems, right? And so that's the context that I grew up with. It was a revelation for me, and I was so taken by it, and I felt so good to express. It felt so good to express as a man. Um, And that's what started me on men's work, was seeing the healing and the decompression that was happening and how the walls break down. And the It was like we were all wearing these, these massive plates of steel armor, you know, and we could hardly move. And when mm-hmm. the armor started to fall off, you could see people start to become free and like feel joy again and feel connected, as you say, like looking into those people's eyes. Um, and that was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that got me hooked um, on the transformative power of just providing a safe place for men to express without being judged or not feeling ashamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had a very similar experience too as the, the first men's workplace that I, I was too. At, at first, when someone invited me, I was like, there's no way I'm joining a men's group. That's not going to yeah. happen. I had this like aversion to men's work, men's group. Um, and after I joined, I, I became kind of like you, like really uh, felt the power of, of these spaces. And, and for me, like, like you, the power of community for like reflecting back and mirroring back and to share together and be seen and witnessed together, that that was really the element that um, helped me understand and helped me understand not just myself, but like the masculine in the broader sense, like what it means. Mm. Um, and I've seen a lot of men's group and affinity groups and uh, women's support groups popping up. And we actually have lunar and solar circles on Nectara as well for people to join. Um, why do you think the, ter- the ter- terminology around this and the discord, uh, discourse around these energies have been growing so much in the last 10 years? Like what, what is it feeding on a societal level? I, men are suffering by and large. I would say, you know, we talked a little bit about the models that we had, but if you didn't have fathers like we had, a lot of people didn't even have fathers that were around. That should be acknowledged is that most people growing up in North America over the last 50 years, like either experienced the type of masculinity that was um, violent, uh, absent commonly, or... um, just disconnected from themselves and and from what they're doing, but basically upset, angry, (laughs) uh, in misery. And so I think that's a, that's something that's very alive for men, especially in the time as times are changing, you know? So on one hand you have the models of masculinity that clearly don't work. You know, the patriarchy that, the, the the patriarchy, the immature masculine that has produced a world that is, you know, that it was it produced slavery, global oppression of women, weapons of mass destruction, endless tribal warfare, uh, shameless uh, exploitation of the environment, uh, the obliteration of indigenous culture, language, and people. 
you know, like most of the problems in our world, you can you can point to a a series of um, masculine, usually white dudes who are behind it. And uh, so on one hand, you have that model, which is the only real model we got, or you get people like, you know, the, or like Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or some of these other like, you know, um, stars, these celebrities that are a model, which show an, a type of an image or like a movie star, like a Tom Cruise or whoever it is. Um, and it's all incomplete, right? So when you combine that with like the disconnection that we had with our fathers emotionally, with the models that were provided, um, not to speak of, don't get me started on like national leaders and presidents, right? Like you, <laughs> Nixon and, you know, all of these figures that, and, and, and Bush and all these figures that like led war and destruction um, and oppression. And, and so you have this model and then you combine that with the disconnection that we have with our fathers and where are men left? If you're someone who's conscious that the modeling that you're given, if, if you are conscious, most people aren't, if you are conscious that the modeling that you're being shown is unhealthy and isn't working, and as most of us, you don't have that mentor figure in the form of a father or a teacher or an uncle or someone, where are you left? Where is your direction about how to manifest this masculine essence in the world? And the part about masculine essence is really important because people who identify as a man and are, um, or are just identify with a masculine essence, which are some women do too, have certain characteristics. They tend to value freedom. They tend to want to have a mission in life. They tend to, um, you know, have vitality to expend in a way like towards something. They tend to want to do work and they tend to want to be uh, in, in action. And that's, that's what also our biological programming is telling us to do. It's telling us to fight, to protect, to reproduce, to, um, to run, to build, to these, these are the kind of the traditional male, like you have testosterone, which is basically a have sex and or kill, which is the primary masculine hormone, uh, masculine hormone, mm -hmm. the primary hormone in male bodied people. And this, this is the cocktail that most men are, are sitting in. And then also, then you add in the corporate structures that, mo that many people work in, which for years and years and years, just basically train you to say like, you got to put all that under, under wrap. You know, you got to be buttoned up. You have to fall into the system. You, you can't get angry at work. You can't. So, so then you have a kind of a repression because some of these um, things that mas masculine essence people are compelled to do uh, have no place. They have not all, no, no model, but also no outlet in, in the world or in relationship. And so then that's a pressure cooker. You know, when you add all that up, it's a pressure cooker for a lot of energy that has nowhere to go, but in on itself. And so, so mm -hmm. you look at the skyrocketing and absolutely astonishing suicide rates in the United States among young men. 
it's no surprise. You know, the the concept of the midlife crisis, the uh, the the shootings, you know, the mass shootings that happen primarily from men. Like the question is, um, how do we make sense of such enormous suffering mm-hmm. that's happening below the surface? That seems to be pretty masculine <laughs> in its nature. And there's a whole nother, you know, there's feminine suffering in a deep way, right? Of course. Um, but yeah. But this is why I think, and in a deep and I would say equal way, right? Because on the other side of godlike technological power and political power in the hands of people who are in this kind of situation we just described are the people who receive the decisions and the behavior that come from this suffering. We say like hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And so that's, I get passionate about it because that's, that's what I encounter in in my clients and with people that I work with. And, and it's, and it's the source of a lot of mm, instability in the world that I, that I really believe that we as men have to take a part in changing because we've caused it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And yet it's a very difficult position to be in because, uh, we're kind of just bushwhacking through the jungle on it. Mm hmm. Because the old models don't yeah. have don't work, or the ones that we were taught, or the ones that are easily accessible. Yeah, of course, is the you know when we talk about masculine, feminine energies, it's in both men and women, and, and then there's also the divine feminine and the toxic feminine as well, and the toxic yeah. masculine uh, trying to rise into the more mature form of the masculine. And um, I've heard a lot in circles I've been a part of recently that it's. Um, and it's also my view that it's time for the uh, divine feminine to rise into the world, like more of the femininity, the mature version of it to rise into the world in terms of uh, positions of power within our, our circles, within our communities, uh, to start addressing the imbalances that we've seen with the masculine having so much say and power over the last hundreds of years. Um, yeah. And I love how you, when we had a call yesterday, you talked about uh, channeling weapons of mass destruction into uh, creating weapons of mass regeneration within the masculine. Can you talk a bit more about that transition yeah. and, and what are you seeing in terms of like, yes, we are bushwhacking for, and, and at the same time, this is like, it's the emergence of the feminine and this emergence of support systems and circles mm-hmm. and, and psychedelics obviously are, are helping um, move the needle forward. Like, what are you seeing in terms of the transition there? Like, wh- what do you imagine is possible um, for us to step into as, as uh, in terms of the masculine energy in yeah, the world? I, I, I like, I like the model of a writer named Richard Rohr. Um, he talks about these, what he calls like the five um, aspects of male initiation. But for me, the thing that's always in my mind are these qualities that an immature or wounded masculine is uh, destructive. When you transmute that energy and turn it into something that's positive, the mature, when it matures, when it's healed, uh, then that energy is generative. 
the spiritual correlation of that or that uh, you know would be like a the archetype of Shiva right? the ar- and then the archetype of Brahma the creator the destroyer um, two aspects of two sides of the same coin right? and on, on a different layer there's there's the um, the form of masculine that's very devoted to himself to the ego right these are the many you know this is the the trumps of the world the uh lots of different examples out there uh harvey weinstein you know like all these are these people who are um for a lot of people villains (laughs) Um, because why why are they perceived that way because of their seemingly devotion to their own Egos to their own to themselves. They use their power, their influence, their um, everything for the for self-serving means. Right. So, like the second piece of what it means to evolve as a masculine, as I understand it, is that you move from being committed to yourself to being committed to something greater than yourself. So, for right re- right relationship within a masculine uh, within a masculine essence is that. All of that energy, all of that power, all of that testosterone, all of that drive is channeled in service of something greater than yourself. When it's channeled in service of something of yourself, then you get the destruction of mass destruction of ecosystems and mass extinction. (laughs) When it's channeled in service of something greater than yourself, you get a generative quality where you're working to build something. Right? So then the other element is um, the mature masculine is safe. And what I mean by that is like, it's safe within itself. A mature masculine person is safe within themselves. Like everything that happens within here is okay and accepted. And also the mature masculine creates safety for other people. So it's like, I don't know if you ever had this. Sometimes it felt like when my father walked in the room I could let out a sigh of relief because like things made sense. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same experience of just like default fear and tension in the yeah. body when he was stepping into the room. Um, and then, yeah, when he would leave, I would be like, oh, phew. Like he didn't say, you know, something aggressive or he didn't, you know, have the opportunity to tell me no right away. And it was great. Like I felt more myself. Right. And it was only when I started joining psychedelic community groups that I got that reflection of the safe right. masculine, like embodied, like not having that external kind of co-opting energy, yeah. but more of like, it's a, it's a tree like that to me, the divine masculine to me, the, mas- the mature masculine to me is a, a cedar tree or a Douglas fir sure. tree. It's like, it's flexible and strong and rooted, but it doesn't try to invade the other trees. <laughs> right. right. In fact, it provides so, a whole ecosystem, this generative quality. It provides a whole ecosystem, a whole shelter, a structure for everything else to flourish underneath it. And so like you can recognize someone who has a mature masculine because when they walk in the room, you feel safer. Things make sense. Like they're not going to react. It's like you kind of just feel like, oh, like, I can kind of be how I am. And if something crazy happens, this person is going to be on it. 
and um, so that's the transition as well. It's like when you when we, it, for, and it starts within. Are you creating safety within yourself? And then is that safety within yourself becomes solid enough to where other people feel it just by you being around? Um, and then I would say like the final quality is that um, I use the archetype of the king a, a lot for this quality because it's it's super useful. Like I was in a, I was in ceremony one time and um, kind of working with this and asking uh, the medicine about these kinds of things. And one message that I got was that the primary, the, the, the true primary, uh, or what was it? It was like the highest task of a king is to create other kings. And I really thought about that for the while, for a while. And then I re I connected it with this concept that the, the mature masculine is empowering. So not, mm -hmm. Not only is it powerful, but it is empowering others. That the the divine masculine is someone someone that gives power to others and and it instills in them a trust in themselves that they can do it. They can use that power responsibly. They can provide safety. They can use that power with devotion to something higher themselves, and they can be generative with the power that they're bestowed upon. Um. And, you know, I always think about Marcus Aurelius, you know, Marcus, like the, the, the famous Roman emperor and philosopher, Marcus Aurelius. Well, he was the, like the best Roman empire, Roman, Roman emperor, you know, on paper that you could argue this is probably one of the best people in terms of how he managed the empire and all this kind of thing. But the one thing with Marcus Aurelius is that his son Commodus was the worst emperor in the history of the Roman Empire, like arguably the worst, you know, there's a lot of bad ones, but this guy was pretty nuts. Like he instigated like the decline basically for the, re for the next couple hundred years. It's like started with him. So what happened there with Marcus Aurelius? We don't know. They made the whole movie gladiator about what could have happened there. Right. But I always think about this because it's like, Oh, Marcus Aurelius seemed to fail at the most, his actually most important job, which was to create other Kings that were that ha were mature right and i think that story of marcus aurelius and his son commodus is a really apt story for this day and age because you know we have uh we seem to have a bunch of commoduses people who didn't get the nurturing necessary and uh are living out a life of unlimited power with devotion to themselves and creating lack of safety and destroying things instead of creating things. Um, anyway, so here's the, that's the, that's the frame, right? And then I would say that the way that men change the world is by living those qualities out and developing, cultivating those qualities within themselves and with, within each other. And then what happens is you don't need to go and like do something. A masculine essenced person will simply just be doing that because there's so much energy um, in the body, which is designed to protect and to grow and all these 
primary functions within the tribal, with kind of like a tribal uh, primitive state, um, that it's got to go somewhere. So it's either going towards one of these directions, either on the side of that like kind of generative side or the side of the mature side. And my philosophy is that if we do this work together as men of making the transition bucket by bucket, uh, step by step, then it simply filters down in our relationships, in our work, you know, in the way that we lead, in the way that we empower others to lead. Um, yeah, and I and I, I I focus on that as the core effort, and I wonder, uh, Pascal, like you've you've had a lot of deep psychedelic experience. I'm wondering if any of those concepts um, are things that have come up in your own journeys and your own learnings through psychedelics. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my exploration of, of these energies has been, um, for the most part, it always constantly is in relationship to my father, but it's when I had my son mm, mm. Um, that the concepts really became at the forefront. I remember holding Noah, who's my son, for the very first time and just being like, oh my goodness, I am a father to this being that just came into the world and I'm now responsible yeah, for him. Responsibility. And having a son was very special for that because for me it's an opportunity to um, pass down some of the teachings I've received and some of the lessons I've learned. And, and not only that, but like the most beautiful thing has been learning from him. Like he's my greatest teacher in terms of um, not just a healthy masculine, but also in terms of just a healthy, joyful human. Mm. Um, and he doesn't quite have the he hasn't fallen in the trap of like either way or extremes of the feminine or masculine. He's, uh, he just is. And you mentioned the healthy masculine just is just being and not so much doing externally. Um, and so he teaches me a lot about that in in terms of presence and in terms of joy and connection and, um, balance as well. Like he's extremely balanced. Um, so he's been my greatest teacher on, on this path. Um, and then the the other kind of um, teacher I've had around this has been just psychedelic communities right. in general um, and interfacing with the plant medicines. And um, one thing that became quite clear to me as I was stepping into this, this space was there was a lot of shamanic containers and a lot of shamanic medicines and practices that were talking about, you know, the grandmother and the grandfather. They were you know, like grandmother ayahuasca, grandfather wachuma, and even wachuma sometimes is called grandmother in certain circles. And so that was a completely new interface for me to explore these things within myself. It gave me an additional context, a different kind of perspective on the feminine and masculine mm -hmm. through the language that were used in the containers, but also in the ways that um, the language used in the container would influence my experience with the medicines like i did a diet with tobacco uh last year um that was transformative in terms of me relating to the masculine and having a healthier kind of uh archetype to relate to and learn from and we talked about this yesterday on our call as the this idea of uh there's traditions in the psychedelic space and there's points of reference 
in the psychedelic space and the lineage from which the medicines come from regarding the masculine and feminine. And indigenous people have uh, sometimes have a very strong sense of femininity and masculinity mm-hmm. as a point of origin for us to be able uh, when we step in the container, there's a certain frame of reference there. And um, I'm curious like to hear from you, like um, as we're inviting those mindsets as a frame of healing that molds our experience, how do we explore them and interface with them? And how can we understand them in relationship to our own consciousness Mm -hmm. and others in our field? Yeah, beautiful question. The thing that's coming up for me is um, my practice of, I practice Qigong and Tai Chi. And that's been a relatively recent thing for me. I had a deep Buddhist insight meditation practice for a long time. And as I started, I talked about, as I started to integrate the feminine inside of me and bring back the, some of the masculine elements using my mind again a little bit more uh, wanting to be more decisive wanting to be more uh, stable future focused you know the, these kind of um, elements this I started becoming very attracted to Qigong and Tai Chi and um, the basic element the basic teaching often is the concept of yin and yang. And uh, this is the most essential description of polarity of the masculine and feminine that I've come across. And uh, when you're doing it in a Tai Chi exercise or Qigong practice, it's embodied, right? So we'll do these practices like you bring the chi up and you bring it down. And it's simply, or it's something like this, yang and yin, yang and yin, you're out and in, out and in. And I bring that up because when I think about the uh, indigenous spirituality, traditional indigenous spirituality as I understand it, it's highly, highly influenced by the natural world, by environment, by nature. And in nature, when you're learning from plants and animals and the seasons and the way that Mother Nature works and Father Sky and these concepts and the sun and the moon and the stars, the way that that works, there's always this element of, of yin and yang. The, the moon rises and it falls. The sun sets and it rises, you know, the, the seasons change that summer is this time of yang and flourishing and, you know, action and these very, what you might call masculine traits, you know, energies in the winter. There's this, there's a coziness, the quiet of the snow, the introspection, the going inwards, the, the gathering, the nurturing around the fire, like very, what's it called traditionally feminine. Right, the time of night versus the time of day. When you're out doing stuff at night, you're, you know, so so to me, that's where this all comes from. It's like learning from nature, and developing our sense of. You know, when I when I say spirituality, I mean like your relationship with something bigger than yourself, which in indigenous cultures a lot of times is 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 developed. You know, it was more closely aligned with the source of all spirituality, which is the source of all knowing 
really, which is our relationship with nature, where we came from. And so, yeah, so I think it's useful to think about that because this idea of the yin and the yang pervades all aspects of, of reality, as far as I can see, you know, um, now, like, now you can go beyond it and, and the Buddhist teachers and certain, um, you know, like tantric and like different traditions will say, well, yeah, that's the fundamental division. There's some fundamental separation, but then beyond that, there's the oneness, right? And of course there's non-duality as well. But as someone who personally is not seeking, actively seeking enlightenment, you know, I, I had a, in my dieta, I realized this, I realized I did a plant, um, a plant medicine dieta almost over a year ago. And I realized that actually I'm not seeking enlightenment. I'm just seeking kind of a sense of equilibrium and well-being and a, and a healthy, joyful, purpose-driven life. And if enlightenment comes along that way, that would be wonderful. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. But as someone who's not seeking enlightenment, I'm a little bit less concerned with the non-dual um, because the yin and the yang is how I interact with the world and interact with the rising and falling, the inward and the outward flow of the emotions and my energy and my thoughts inside myself, the flow of energy between a relationship, the giving and receiving that's happening in life, the uh, reciprocity that happens in business. Uh, the, and, and these concepts are the concepts that are resonant within me and my clients who have real world practical, they're focused on real world practical goals. Like how can we have less reactivity in my relationship with my wife? Or, um, I get angry at my child. How can I deal with that? You know, how, without hurting somebody, Mm -hmm. uh, or, or, you know, my business is, I'm struggling in my business. How do I become focused on what is actually valuable and how do I change my mindset of how I'm relating to money in order to relate with that? And I, to me, it's like, that's all the same teaching. It's all yin and yang. It's mm-hmm. all masculine and feminine and it exists in all beings and all things. Um, and so a mastery mm-hmm. and a deep understanding of polarity in this way is the key to navigating uh, phenomena, phenomenal reality, which of course, like, you know, in, in the, the Vedas would say, like, the reality, the, the, the maya, maya, right, illusion, what we live is essentially like the body of the goddess and everything that happens is the body of the goddess and all of that is happening in the mind of the god of Shiva, whose consciousness is, is the container for all this. And yet we live in, we live, we're living life. Whatever you believe, somehow we ended up here living life in this body connected to the yin and the yang, the flow, the destruction, the birth, the death, the life, right? And so that is what I'm here to do. I'm here to live life in a way that feels meaningful. And so this Mm -hmm. practice of yin and yang, this practice of masculine and feminine and the ways that it shows up in your psychedelic experiences, which takes you to that zone, that liminal zone, 
where you're not so much in your body and in your head and in the, in the illusion, but you're not disconnected from it at the same time. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about a lot of psychedelic experiences. They take you far enough outside of the whirlwind of things that you get perspective on it. So that when we can come back into the whirlwind of our life, we come back with that perspective of, oh, this is actually just the separation. This is actually just the yin and the yang. And that allows me a little bit more mastery as I co-create this reality. And, and, I, and I feel that when we, in psychedelic settings, when we use the frame of the grandfather, the grandmother, the masculine, the feminine, the, um, it's helpful because it points to that. And so then when we're in integration, which is really the important part in my experience of peak experiences and, and, and communion with these, these um, consciousnesses, these plant medicine consciousnesses, that we have that frame that we in some ways are pointing to the yin and the yang, to the masculine and the, in a familial way. That's what I love about the grandfather and the grandmother and because it's taking this abstract concept of yin and yang or you know we talk about the psychological or cultural concept of masculine and feminine and it puts it in terms of family which i think is so apt and so brilliant and so human because it connects it connects too. us to what's happening in life oh that's grandfather tobacco you know tobacco oh okay well it involves, a, it, it's integrating the, the, yin, the fundamental yin and yang. It's integrating the masculine and the feminine and invites that consciousness in my own life and in myself. And also it's saying you are connected. We are family. Um, and in a funny circular mm. way, the awareness of that ends up breaking down um, separation. Which is funny. It's funny. It's funny to me that like the consciousness of the fundamental separation, yin and yang, ends up breaking down our sense of separation. It, it can even heal relationships in your own life. When <clears throat> I I done work with grandfather Wachima and grandfather Tobacco, and my grandfather, um, you know, bless his heart, he was an mm. alcoholic, and I saw him only mm. twice in my life, and working with these reference points and these energies with the plants in a subtle and powerful way at the same time, like help me heal my relationship to that archetype of the grandfather. Yes. It helped me heal my relationship yes. to my grandfather and it, the, the teachings helped me bring in more compassion to that relationship, help me bring more understanding, help me bring a lot of forgiveness. Um, and so in a very real way, I'm glad you bring that up. It really does help yeah. heal relationships yeah. in your own life. Um, and we've been talking all this time around masculinity. Um, and you started talking about your work uh, just now. And it's important to know that you also yeah. work with women. You work mm -hmm. with women and their masculinity. Like, can you tell us more about that in terms of yeah. like, um, what did they come to work on and like, I've heard a lot from, especially this year around um, the wounded feminine and how there's this emergence and this kind of like expression of of the 
the bumps on the road that they're facing and the the, the heavy shouldering of many roles yeah. at the same time and um, the masculine kind of getting in the way and like so so many different things like a lot of women are going through transformation Absolutely. just like we are as self-identified men um, what 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 has been your experience with working with yeah with it's, women? thank you so much for asking that question i almost wish we would have said that at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> um, but the <laughs> yeah the women that i work with especially in the in the context of psychedelic integration many of them are shall we say in their conditioned masculine meaning in order to live in a man's world to succeed to make money in these corporations who, you know, to do that, they've, and with the absence of mature masculine fathers and role model and people who are holding space for them, they've had to learn to, these women have had to learn to do this for themselves. When they, you can't trust the men in your life to do the things that traditionally a man would do or a mature masculine archetype would provide, then you have to do them yourselves, even if that's not your preference, even if that's not your core, your essence, where you really feel at home. And so a lot of the women uh, that I work with are seeking a reconnection with the feminine, you know, so learning to let go, learning to trust, learning to reignite the creativity, the dance, the music um, in their life. And in doing so, they have to let go of the conditioned persona of the masculine that a lot of women have been inhabiting for a long time. And so my understanding, and I think David Data talks a little bit about this, is like when you're operating outside of your, what you would call like your core essence, so you can think about it maybe as a continuum with the masculine archetype on one side and the feminine archetype on the other word, and people fall all along this continuum. And if you are more to one pole and you're operating in your life more on the other side, it's taking energy from you. You, you have to really spend a lot of energy to operate outside of what is natural for you. Um, and so, so... You know, I have one client in particular who we've been working for the last nine nine months on this, but a be- it's been a beautiful, beautiful um, coming back home, a homecoming for her to reconnect with the feminine inside herself, and psychi- and and psychedelics have been a huge part of that. You know, we we did a, she did a psilocybin journey a couple of weeks ago, and with the intention, right, with the intention and the pre work that we were doing of letting go and feeling safe enough to let go. Um, and so it helps to have a, uh, it helps, I, one of the, maybe this, the skills that I have or the things that I can offer is that I can speak to both sides because I've been to both extremes within myself. And so someone who walks into my door with a masculine conditioning and a feminine essence, I can see that and feel that. And I can speak to the masculine, speak in ways that they'll, hear both parts of them will hear and not reject and a lot of my work is just helping people begin to have an open communication between the two sides of themselves and have the courage and the safety to 
um, experience coming back to what feels normal, what feel what normal, what feels home for them in the way that they're operating. And I think psychedelics is a huge, huge help for that because it usually just gives you, it usually will often will take you, take you, it often will invite you to inhabit that home space once again, in my experience. It removes, yeah, it removes the mask. The mask. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. You're getting married mm-hmm. soon. And um, I've been married for over 10 years and been with Elaine uh, for around 20. And that relationship itself has been, just like my son, um, you know, a very powerful relationship of continuously navigating life together, uh, reflecting stuff on each other. Um, sometimes one person moves a little bit faster than the other, and then there's a bit of like tension or energy around that. Um, and she has been, you know, we've always kind of referred to ourselves as kind of like the mm. twin flame concept, which is kind of a modern day kind of spiritual archetype around the idea of like very deep pol- polarity mm. in a relationship and how there's a lot of potential for growth in that relationship. And also it's a very challenging mm-hmm. one because the polarity obviously invites um, eventual harmony, but it requires like a lot of effort and dedication to getting there because the initial kind of polarity is tumultuous and it can be challenging and it can, you know, yes, yes. trigger you basically. <laughs> uh, and so our path has been like a, this dance and, you know, we've had the privilege to be able to dance that for a long time and so we've basically grown mm. up together in a, in a real way and um, I feel like we're now after all this time like we're really stepping into like a new phase mm. of our relationship where you know we've done a fair bit of work and you know we feel more confident in ourselves and just kind of more present and all those kind of good things and yet of there's course. still more work to do um, we're stepping into this new phase of our life and I'm curious like from your perspective like what that polarity has been like for mm. you and your relationship and how you've navigated kind of the more masculine or more feminine side of yourself in relationship mm. to your partner and how that's been for her as well and um finally like as a as a couple like what that dance has been yeah, like for been, you first of all thank you for sharing your experience it's um i bow to you and i honor you both for walking that very very intense path um and uh yeah and that's the path that my partner and i walk as well i mean i what can i say i I can say we're in process you know we're definitely in process and one of the things that we've been working with recently is that we are as you say evolving together and we talked about the mask and the more core essence. And, um, you know, as someone who was raised by my mother and uh, who let go very deeply into the, the flow of the divine feminine as I had my kind of spiritual awakening and homecoming, um, I tend to have a conditioned feminine, but a, but, but a masculine essence. And my partner tends to have a masculine conditioning and a feminine essence. 
And that's exhausting for both of us. So what happens in relationship, as I understand it, is that there's always, someone always has to occupy one of the poles. You know, it, it's, um, and, and I think uh, same-sex couples know this well, right? You have top and bottom and butch and femme and all these different ways of describing who is currently or in this situation or by default uh, taking what role. And polarity and, 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 and energy and 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 um, you know someone with a feminine essence according to David Data he talks about that the person with the feminine essence wants more than anything their highest good their highest thing that they want is the flow of love to be surrounded by and the, the love to flow and know that it's there and it's coming and it's flowing and it's, you know, that's what they want and the person with the masculine essence wants uh, freedom more than anything freedom consciousness space clarity you know that that kind of thing and and they want more maybe even more than they want that they want each other because because one lacks what the other has and they, one provides what the other needs right and so this is the nature of attraction as i understand it and as i've experienced it in my relationship it's like in some sense my my conditioned feminine was attracted to her conditioned masculine. That's why we work at the outset. But as we're growing and healing together, both of us are wanting to come more and more to our authentic selves and just be able to just be more easily in our relationship in our life. Um, and so what that requires is it requires me to step more into the masculine, you know, it, which would be in practical terms, like doing more logistics around the house, like all of these kinds of things that take a little bit of the pressure off of her trying to keep it all up and it'll provide for our freedom. And it requires her coming more into the flow of love, taking better care of her body, uh, you know, like leaning into her sex sensuality, her sexuality, and and there are reasons why we're not at our at our um, authentic states, and it's usually it's because of often trauma or um, early life experience. And so you know that's mm -hmm. that's the the tension and that's the journey that that we're on, and a lot of my clients are are on, and a lot of my, most of my coaches and my mentors are on as well. And it's also, you can see it as maybe the journey that we're all on as a collective um, in terms of our relationship to place, our relationship with nature, um, our relationship with each other, our, the way that our systems work. Um, and yeah, and so, so it's, a, it's a difficult path and, it's, and it, requires, it requires healing. It, it requires uh, going into, for, in our case, it requires confronting trauma and integrating, and integrating um, mm -hmm. traumatic experiences that are causing us to be out of alignment with ourselves. And, and that's really challenging and requires a lot of love and a lot of support. Um, Yes, and gentleness. Yeah. Like to me, the word gentleness yeah. has come up a lot for for us, like as a couple too. Is like, no, we we haven't quite um, 
you know, worked out all the kinks, but like it's the gentleness along the way and being like, you know what, yes. like we're moving towards something and we trust in that and like being gentle when the hiccups do happen and do, they do happen. And that's, I've had this, this relationship to hiccups these days that I'm grateful for the medicine that they bring. Like I'm grateful for what mm -hmm. they're teaching us. And, you know, whenever we have a hiccup, then um, I try yeah. to look for the lessons underneath that. I try to understand like, and that comes from a space of like kind of having excavated mm. kind of the deeper ones, parts of my trauma yes. where I don't get ignited right away. Um, it's it's taken a long time to get to that kind of calm state of like not falling into the trap, but um, that space offers so much mm. lessons and so much understandings. And as a society, we're going through that in a big way these days in terms of of like you said a relationship to nature like a lot of people suffer from solastalgia which is the the deep felt sense in your, your mind body and soul that your home is being uh damaged or, or in danger and a lot of us don't quite know how to name it but it's called solastalgia and that's a relationship to nature um and society is moving so quick these days that there is a lot of moving parts and there is a lot of work that that we need to do and um one of the ways that you engage in the world is through your your psychedelic uh, integration preparation work. Um, the space of the psychedelic space, or the in, I don't like calling it the psychedelic industry, but the 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 movement of the emergence of psychedelic back into the world. What are your greatest hopes for that in terms of like having it move the needle for us as as individuals, as couples, as communities, and as you know designers of societal structures really like yeah. what is your greatest hope for the space i think my greatest hope for the space is also related to what you just mentioned about what's needed in a relationship of this kind that we're talking about you said gentleness you know is so important and i think that's so right and the thing that i would add to gentleness is honesty because we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with our partners if we're going to actually deal with the things that hold us from, separate us from ourselves, from being our true selves, right? And we're, if we're going to help one another. And there's, you have to be gentle in the way that you're honest as well, I think, which is what I'm learning, right? And then a mature masculine is not only truthful, but also gentle and considerate in the way that they're truthful. Um, and I think the same. Mm -hmm. That's the same is my hope for for the for this space for the psychedelics healing and therapy space, which is that um, I believe psychedelic. I, I believe plant medicine in particular has the opportunity, has the gift within it of 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 um, honesty, of take as you said, taking the mask off. And my hope is that we have more and more of us are willing to do the, the work of reckoning with what I would say reckoning with reality as it is in this moment. You know, when you reckon with what's happening in the environment, when you reckon with the way that you are being towards your partner, when you reckon with the way that you treat certain parts of yourself, this is a big one for me. How do I treat the parts of myself that I don't like, you know? And I, I'm not always honest with myself about that. When I take plant medicine, I'm strongly, strongly 
invited to be honest, right? Like these, these parts of myself stand up in front of me and I get to have a conversation. And my hope is that through the inner work of honesty and taking the mask off and seeing ourselves more honestly, more clearly and not shying away because we don't want to experience the pain and the disappointment of, of reality, um, that that becomes the platform that becomes the foundation for, for, for choosing differently. I, I don't believe that we can actually choose differently mm-hmm. unless we come, come to reckoning with what is. And I think more, most of our problems, um, a lot of our problems stem from, uh, people as individuals, all of us as individuals, not having the courage to reckon with what is within ourselves because there's no collective or societal or social problem that, um, we as a part of the collective are not in some way bearing partial responsibility for creating. So anything my message is that Mm -hmm. like anything that you see outside of yourself that you don't like, your first job is to look for that inside yourself and start by changing that because it probably exists inside yourself in some way Mm -hmm. if you're experiencing it in your life. Yeah. Beautiful. And in terms of relationship, um, there's a, a saying around relationships and, and couples around mm. standing for each other. I've not heard this. I'm, I'm interested. Um, yeah, my friend Richard um, from the Sentinel, um, he said that a couple of years. And he's been in relationship to uh, his mm. wonderful wife, Jillian, for many, many years. And they shared that to me and Elaine when we were at their house once. And I thought that was so wise to like approach it that way because it's so easy to get triggered uh, not only from your couple's uh, your your partner's shadows and then kind of like trigger that more but it's the same in terms of society mm. like when we're seeing these things mm. happen in society that we don't like I dealt with climate mm. depression for many years um, I was just getting triggered by the actions of what was happening and the feelings I was feeling and um, it's when I, I, I heard that saying that it, things started to transform and of course with psychedelic experiences I started to change my relationship to the external in terms of not non-attachment impermanence and those kind of ideas um, but also standing for like like where people are at and like reflecting that back on me and asking myself where am I at right now and continuously bringing it back to myself um, so I love how you phrase that in terms of the psychedelic space I think there's a lot that people are navigating through as we're kind of building a spaceship in midair right now in terms of the the space. And um, my greatest hope is that we can uh, operate from a space of love and compassion and kindness. Um, That's my greatest hope and um, as well maintain their sacredness of medicines. I think that's very important. Essential. Um, So thank you, Devin, for the the conversation. Um, Where can it was beautiful. I loved your. Yeah, I feel like we could talk we for probably five or six we more may have hours. To do another one on different, different things. <laughs> we might have, we'll have to do another one. I would love to invite you again. Um, where can people find you and like what's coming yeah, up so to you, you in the world these days? Yeah, so you can find me on uh, deeplightcoaching.com. That's my my website where you can see my offerings on uh, a mindfulness offering for for organizations and companies, one-on-one coaching 
and also men's men's work. And then my uh, psychedelic integration and preparation work, you can find me on Nectara, uh, nectara.co, and um, in the guide section, you can you can find me, it's Devin Walker, and you can book right on right on uh, right on the app. Perfect. And finally, last question: um, What would you like to say to the person listening to this right now? I would like to say that no matter how you feel in the downtimes, you're whole and you are exactly where you need to be, even if it doesn't feel that way. And uh, ask for help.